Morning, church. A special welcome to our visitors. If you're visiting for the first time, please come back next week. I promise it will be different. <laughs> I prayed a prayer. The prayer was, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. <laughs> Not my will, but thy will be done. And his will was done, so I'm here. <laughs> In our last meeting, they had a book that the school will go over. The title of the book, which they've added a new chapter is, Speak Like Churchill, Stand Like Lincoln, and Shake and Tremble Like McGlashan. <laughs> Andrew is not here this morning. He's on uh, vacation. And so this week, it is my pleasure, I confess that sin, to bring the message this morning. Next week, Dave Chase, if he's well, will bring the message. And this Wednesday, Johan McGlashan will do the Wednesday night Bible study. I'm hoping next week Dave would be in good health and I don't have to pray that prayer again. Or if I do, I get a good result. <laughs> We're continuing with our Connect series. Our topic is the church, and the goal, of course, is to encourage visitors and attendees to enter into a meaningful relationship with Christ and the Northwest Baptist Church. Our beliefs are point number six. We, we believe that the Church of Jesus Christ is made up of all baptized believers who are united in one body, one spirit, built upon one foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, living in one hope, one faith, one baptism, and under one God, and the Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. We further believe that the pattern for all believers in the New Testament church was that every believer who confessed faith in Christ and was baptized, joined in covenant membership, marriage with a local church. The last part were my words. Whereby they submitted to its leadership and served one another in love and good works. Before I get into the meat of the message, I need to tell you about my personal experience about this body of believers 
I came to this church in the latter part of 1980. I was just a Christian. I knew nothing about the deep truths of the Bible. We were visited by Charlene. And she made such a good impression on us that we not only came back to the church, but we adopted our sons. <laughs> and over the years, I am and have become a product of the teaching and the nurturing, and I have matured to where I am now, wherever that is, in this church. This church is a vital part of not myself alone, but there are four generations of Maglashans that have attended this church. My dad, when he was alive, after his first visit, so impressed with Pastor Summers that whenever he came, and he's not a church goer, I might add, wanted to come to the Northwest Baptist Church. I have to say my mom left the Roman Catholic Church. She's closer to Baptist Presbyterian as a result. My sister is now a born-again Christian. And I have to say a lot of that has to do with them, my family, looking at my life and how I have progressed as a Christian. I am sure there are similar in this congregation this morning. And it just goes to show how important the church is in molding and shaping the lives of Christians. The church is not about anything else more than it is about people, about fellowship, about caring, about lifting up each other in good times and not so good times. We have to, and I'm a part of this church, so let me put it this way. I commend this church from where I am, not positionally, but from where I am over the 34 years, and seeing this church transition and transition and transition and held fast to the doctrine and the teaching of the Bible. This church has seen good times and not so good times. I remember when we were on TV and we had cameras out there and it was a big splash. I'm not saying anything is wrong with that, but it demonstrates a level of affluence that the church could afford that we cannot afford now. And I'm not going to venture off into a business meeting, so don't get worried. 
So the church is very, very important to each and every one of us. And we should not marginalize the value of our membership in the church. It's very important, it's very precious, and it's very privileged. Our text this morning, I ask the deacons to sit on the front row, and after every three or four points I make, they were to stand up and say amen, but I guess they <laughs> forgot. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Shake like my glass. Our text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. John chapter 14, verse 15, and chapter 14, 21 to 24. Revelations, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and Matthew, chapter 22, 37 to 40. So if you have lunch engagement, please text them now and tell them you're going to be late. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It starts on a negative note, or so we, it would seem. In how we look at things today, when you mention the word prison, everybody's brains spin around, and the, credit, the credibility level goes way down. It's not a good term. Prison, imprisonment, arrest, house arrest. But that's where Paul wrote this letter during imprisonment. But I want to make a point about that. This was temporal imprisonment. Paul was rescued from eternal imprisonment when Christ met him on the road to Damascus. So for Paul, as we would say today, this was no big thing. The greatest thing is that he was rescued from hell, from the prison of hell. And so are each and every one of us. So our circumstances might be dire, situations might seem like they're unsurmountable, but we have a hope. When Paul wrote this letter, unlike many of the other letters, it was a general letter. It was a type of letter that was meant for the churches in the area. These folks who gave us our commentaries, and I might add at this point, and I, I don't want to not mention that 
the commentaries that I have read, Systematic Theology by Grudem, Life Application Bible Commentary, and the NIV Application Commentary by Snogdroff are my references, and of course, but last but not least, the Bible. So it says, namely in the province commonly known as Asia Minor, we get the epistle to the Ephesians. The letter was really intended to be only for the church, not only for the church at, at Ephesus. Most modern scholars are convinced it was a circular letter and the term used here is encyclical and it was meant for many churches in Asia, including Ephesus. In other words, in today's 216 language, this was a broadcast. This was a group email. This was one of those letters that is fitting for the churches in the area. So we take our look at that church and we look at what transpired in Ephesus and we see and draw certain similarities from Ephesus to Miami. Ephesus was a major tourist and commercial trade route. As I go through this, you can draw references to where you are now. Do I bite the ice or swallow the ice? It's one of the biggest money-making attraction was the tourist industry. The great attraction there was the temple of Artemis, Diana, the fertility goddess. It brought in a lot of money and the government was not pleased or rather well, yes, the government was not pleased that the church had sought to establish itself there. So the church had a challenge. The challenge was competing in what transpired at Ephesus at that time. But we noted something very careful about the competition. This temple of Artemis was slated as one of the seven wonders of the world. It took 220 years to be built. It was rebuilt and was finally destroyed in 401 AD. It goes to show that the church of God, unlike this temple where the goddess was, is not a building. It is Christ. And it is still standing in the year 2016 as evidenced by congregations all across the world and more locally the Northwest Baptist Church. It is sustained by Christ, him and him alone. 
Paul understood this. So prison bars did not bother him. In the church, we, the local church, will have challenges. We will struggle. We will have bumps in the road. There are no perfect church because there are no perfect people in the church. But we must understand as we struggle that we're going to have bumps in the road. But God will prevail because it's his church. So that's the challenge that Paul faced. Then he faced the change. The change, Paul went to the Jews. He was a Jew. He went to the synagogue. And guess what happened? They refused him. They didn't want anything to do with him. He, he persevered and was determined, continuing to preach. The location didn't bother him. He rented a hall and began to preach to Jews and Greeks. At the writing of this letter to the Ephesians, the church was primarily made up of Gentiles. Similarity with our church, the change. When we came here in 1980 to where we are in 2016, there have been a lot of changes in the makeup, not only of this church, but of many churches. This church and body of believers, again I say, is to be commended. A lot of churches did not sustain change. They imploded. And most of the problems with the church during change happen from within. But let me not get ahead of myself here. Paul did not change his message. His circumstances changed, but his message did not. Our message should not change. Our circumstances might change. Our composition might change. The way we operate because of the laws and the government may change, but our message remains the same. It's the word of God, and that will not change. And we have to, as a church, guard against the protection of the word. So Paul was not deterred. He was not discouraged. He was not defeated. He had already been assured of victory. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. 
This is our church. It is Christ's church. As long as it is, the gates of hell will not prevail. The church flourished. The church at Ephesus became spiritually strong, producing such famous leaders as Apollos and John the disciple who was exiled to the Isles of Patmos. The church was also commended for its hard work and perseverance. I'm not slowing down to make a point. My, my throat is dry. We fast forward to Revelations chapter 2, and we see in verses 2 and 3, and we will look a little bit closer at that, where they were commended, their deeds, their hard work, and their perseverance. But when we read Revelations chapter 2, and church, this is so important, it said they fell short of the mark. They lost their first love. Who is the church first love? It is Christ. They lost their first love. We, the church, collectively and individually have to make every effort not to fall in the same category as the church at Ephesus. We have evidence of what happened to them. And if we lose our first love, all that we do here will be in vain. So, from the famous, we're going to examine now, Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it, got to do with it, it's a second-hand emotion, or is it? Let us read what the Bible says about loving the Lord, because it says they have lost their first love. No, love is a word that's thrown around a lot.
And in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commands and keep them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Ladies, please don't feel neglected. It includes you as well. If Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That word love appears in those short verses about seven or eight times. And right beside it is an imperative command that qualifies the love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love is not only a word. It is what we do. And I decided to look to see, knowing what it is, but looking to see what is this commandment. And we go to our dear friend Google, and you pull up the first thing and the commandments of the New Testament. And the first one says there are 1,050 commands that you must obey. And it, it, it really categorized them. And in the next, the other one, it says 49 commandments you must obey. And others had different numbers. Now, I'm not a theologian, but the Bible speaks very clearly on this. So, if the church lost its first love, and seven times in those short verses, it speaks about love and obeying his commands, then it's important that we understand what are these commands. So we go to our next text, which is Matthew chapter 22. Now, in Matthew chapter 22, we see where Christ and the Pharisees get into one of their many 
discussions with them trying to trip him up. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? We could learn a lot from Christ's answer. He did not answer him. He gave him the answer to answer the real question. And the real question really was, what are the commands of the New Testament that we should follow? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, here is the key to the whole issue of loving God and keeping his commandments. He says, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So breaking this down further, here, it is, what, here is what the general consensus is. Anchoring foundationally at the core of all of what we do in following scripture is your love of God and your love of your neighbor. And you cannot, you cannot carry out, implement, successfully love God unless you come through these two understanding, the anchoring of what we do. What you do as a church, what you do as individuals, Christ has to be at the very foundation of it. What you do for yourself, you should do for your neighbor. So love is not about this warm, fuzzy feeling. What Christ is saying in no, inter in, in no debatable term is obedience. Obedience. If you love me, obey me. And he is saying to us as we deal with each other on a daily basis, take the high road. One of my credos here at the Northwest Baptist Church and folks name who I will not call will hear me say it all the while, do not perpetuate what you do not like. You understand that? 
we are not in a boxing contest with our neighbors. We're not in a fight with our brothers and sisters or Christ to do what we feel like doing. We are not. So, love of neighbor and love of Christ. Love is also regard from the very early stages we see things go awry when we do not have a regard for God. And we go back to Genesis chapter 4. And, well, I've read this one already, so. It says, And Abel brought of the firstborn of the flocks and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel. And the Lord had regard for Abel. And his offering. But for Cain, his offering, he had no regard. Why? Love is obeying my commandments. Love with regards to God is not doing what you think God wants you to do. It's what God says you must do. Must do. Cain did not do what God wanted him to do. So he had no regard. When we have no regard and we deviate, we have sinned. Because we have offended God. If somebody does not regard you, you're offended. So why if we have no regard for God, we do not feel like he is offended? He is offended. And it is a sin. And we should cure that. It's very important for the church to understand what love is. It's what God requires. Now, love is most times sacrificial. God demonstrated his love for us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So love as a component of sacrifice. We like to be loved, but we don't like to love. So if you follow that, nobody loves anybody. Right? It's a natural conclusion. But this we see was the allegation that was brought to the church at Ephesus. It is what God wants us to do 
not what we want to do. So as a church, Paul finally, I'm doing good. <laughs> In his final letter to the Ephesians, Paul has some words for the church. Today, 2016, we live in a very legalistic society. We live in a very permissible society. We are a disruption to the norm, and so we should be. We are salt. If you put salt on a wound, you're not going to like it. The wound is sin. We are salt. So, we're disruptive, and we're proud of it. When we are not disruptive anymore, we have lost our flavor, and we should not. So the world, the church today, runs counter to the world system. We will have to equip ourselves to be effective and carry out the mission collectively and individually. As you leave these premises, you represent Christ more than you represent your last name. Because it's from that people are going to determine who you are and from what you do, they will make up their own minds. So Paul's final admonition to the church, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If I could just pause there and say what Paul is saying is, you can't do this alone. You have to embody Christ. You have to be equipped. This is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. A physical battle requires, I guess today, a Colt 45 or a Magnum, but we do need, in the spiritual warfare, a Bible 66. As be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. If you are going to put on a armor of God, it presupposes that you are going to fight or you should be in preparation for a fight or there is a fight going on. 
irrespective of how you want to look at it, something is about to happen that requires you to be equipped for battle. And we have to be prepared for it. And who are we battling with? And the scripture goes on. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You see how many against is against us? But there is one God. There is one word of God. There is one church of God. And there is one victory against all the foes. So this is why Paul is telling us in his final admonition to the church, be strong in the Lord, not in yourself, not in your own strength. It will not work. It will not succeed. So he says in all of this, therefore, as a result of all of the against, as a result of all of what is happening out there in this world, he says, therefore, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done so, stand firm. No, I want to spend some time on this word, stand firm. Stand firm in battle means you do not run. The church will see troubled times. Do not run. There is a time to run and a time to stay put and fight. Joseph ran for a good reason from Potiphar's wife. Jacob ran. He was deceitful. He had no choice. David should have run. He did not. Nehemiah my favorite person. Should a man like me run and destroy my testimony? When we run, we are saying God is not sufficient. That's what we're saying when we run. We have to embrace whatever struggle it is that the church and individually we go through. I wish I had time to tell you of some of the struggles of the Maglashan family, although the matriarch of that family would not agree to be doing that. We have to stand. We have to make a stand. If we do not, who will? We are the church. We are God's chosen people. We are the priesthood of believers. If God can't trust us, who will he trust?
it is us. It is our responsibility to stand firm and fight. And we have the equipment to fight. For the word of God is swift and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder, joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What more powerful than that? And prayer. And it is our fellowship and our collectiveness that makes us strong as a church. I know you will like what I am going to say next. In conclusion, <laughs> yeah. in conclusion we have to serve we're servants and I want to say something I left out something sorry about that conclusion is not here yet where is it they warned me of this. The true church. Christ is the head of the true church. The church is made up of born again believers. We're all servants and stewards. We are the body of believers. There is a structure of this church comprising of pastors, deacons, and congregation. We practice biblical performance of the following. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, preaching and teaching the word of God, and praying in the name of Jesus. In Article 7, where Calvin and Luther came together with the Augsburg Confession, this qualifies us as a true church. I want to say to our church this morning, we are a true church of Almighty God, and we should be proud of it. So in conclusion, we serve the Trinity. We promote unity. And we are God's warriors against Satan. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against all the against I just mentioned before. I am, I, standing here this morning, I am glad I am not at any other church but the Northwest Baptist Church. I see this as I see my marriage. And I am committed to this church. And I hope all of us feel the same way. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.